Okay, so this morning uh, we're continuing in our series looking at the book of James. Um, and if you were here last week, you would have heard Nicholas speak. And, uh, and I think what I found from her talk last week, and I think speaking to her afterwards, uh, she said the same, it's an incredibly challenging book. Um, so I guess the spoiler alert this morning is that as we head into chapter two, it doesn't really get any easier. <laughs> um, but whilst it certainly is a challenging book, it's also an incredibly practical book. Uh, it's full of wisdom, and hopefully some of that wisdom will be imparted to us this morning. Uh, so James, he was in fact the brother of Jesus, and he was also a leader in the, uh, the early church in Jerusalem. And whilst he was a leader, the church faced many problems. Uh, they faced famine, they faced poverty, and they faced persecution. And as, as I said, his book is full of wisdom. And unlike many of Paul's books, where he takes the gospel apart to show us what it is, James shows us how we are to live as Christians if we're impacted by that gospel. Uh, so this morning, we move on to chapter 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up at verse 1. Uh, the words should be on the screen, though. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here James is talking to the church about favoritism, and he uses the example of a rich man coming into the meeting, being shown special attention and given a good seat at the front, whilst a poor man is treated badly and he's told to sit on the floor by someone's feet. And when we look around the world, we see examples of favoritism everywhere. I read something uh, following the Queen's funeral that world leaders were wanting to ensure they could sit as front uh, as, as, front to the, as close to the front as possible with the best seat uh, because there was a perception that the closer you were to the front, the more important and the more well-respected you were on the, uh, on the world stage. And there was a suggestion that some of the more popular leaders were given better seats and were shown favoritism compared to others. A number of years ago, Jeremy Paxman was accused of showing favoritism towards a team from Cambridge University on University Challenge. So Paxman, who himself went to Cambridge, was accused of being more lenient with some of the answers from the Cambridge team, and he was also accused of showing them more encouragement when they got a correct answer compared to their rivals. Although, having watched it, I'm not sure how enthusiastically Jeremy Paxman gives encouragement to anyone. <laughs> and it can also be common for children to grow up thinking that their parents favoured one of their siblings. So my sister and I, we used to talk about this, and uh, we, used to, we used to think, you know, who is my parents' favourite child? And to be fair to my mum and dad, who are both here this morning, 
we could never really work out who the favourite was. We just knew it definitely wasn't my brother. <laughs> and I'm not sure if Harry Maguire has any dirt on Gareth Southgate, but seemingly he has shown favouritism every time England play, despite his obvious failings. <laughs> now, these examples, they may be amusing, but they are, in fact, fairly trivial, because there is an incredibly serious side to showing favouritism. Because ultimately, what is it? What is favoritism? It's giving preferential treatment to one group whilst discriminating against another. The example that James gives us is discrimination against the poor. But in society, we find discrimination based on social class and standing, based on religion, based on race, based on gender. And James is saying, if we discriminate, we become like judges with evil thoughts. Some commentators suggest that this is the equivalent to a judge taking a bribe. So fundamentally, it comes down to treating others in a just way. It's an issue of justice. But James goes on to say, and he really doesn't pull any punches here, he says that not only are we to be people that care about justice, we are also to show mercy. Because judgment without mercy, and that's God's judgment, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Some pretty sobering words there. Now, mercy in the dictionary is described as showing compassion or showing kindness. And, uh, and certainly there are many examples within the Bible of people showing mercy. But what you find often in these examples is that showing mercy, showing kindness, then often leads to action. So, for example, in Luke 18, the blind beggar shouts out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. And whilst Jesus obviously has compassion for the beggar, there is also action. Jesus restores the man's sight. The parable of the Good Samaritan, which is also known as the one who showed mercy. Again, the, Sar the Samaritan obviously shows compassion, but this is followed up by action. So when James tells us to show mercy, does he mean for us to just show compassion and kindness, or should that compassion and kindness lead to action? Well, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says these words. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith, by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So we must be a community of justice and mercy. But James says it's no good just talking about this stuff. He says there must be action. We are, so to speak, to put our money where our mouths are. Now, I just very quickly want to say a quick word about faith and works, because James mentions it here. <coughs> James tells us that, by f that uh, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action or works, is dead. And throughout history, many historians have said that this is a contradiction of Paul's teaching, uh, that we are saved by faith alone. But I don't think there is any contradiction here. So whilst we can only get into relationship with God by faith alone, the ultimate proof that you have saving faith is surely the, the changed life 
that true faith inevitably brings. Martin Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. A tree that is alive produces fruit. It's not the fruit that brings life, but the fruit is a sign of life. So this morning, with this in mind, I just want to look at a couple of areas. Firstly, I want to look at why showing justice, and particularly justice to the poor, is so important to God. I want to look at how we can have a new attitude towards the poor and the vulnerable. And then finally, I want to look at practical ways we can strive for justice. Uh, Now, as we come on later this morning, we'll see that how to respond to issues of justice is incredibly complex. Um, And I think our response to justice issues is determined by a number of factors and influences. And one of those factors is undoubtedly our political leanings. So I want to be clear first thing this morning. This talk isn't about advocating one political ideology over another. Us being a community of justice is not about being political. It's about being faithful to the kind of people that God wants us to be. So uh, with that disclaimer out of the way, let's look at why justice is so important to God. In verse 5, James tells us that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. But what does it mean that God has chosen the poor? Could you say that God is on the side of the poor? So whilst this emphasis in the Bible has led some, like Latin American theologian Gustavo Gutierrez, to speak of God's preferential option for the poor, others look at passages in the Mosaic Law that warn against giving any preference to the rich or the poor. However, the Bible does say, and we've heard it this morning, that God is the defender of the poor. And it never says he is the defender of the rich. Within the Bible, when the scriptural scriptural authors talk about who should benefit from either God's justice or God's people showing justice, it's a very typical list of people. Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19 says... For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Similar verses can be found throughout the Bible. When the biblical authors talk about who should benefit from acts of justice, it is the same group of people over and over. It's the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. It's basically those who are most vulnerable in society. So why does scripture continually mention these types of people? Well, it's certainly true that the rich can be treated unjustly, but the poor and the vulnerable I would say, are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, they are disproportionately victims of of injustice. It stands to reason that injustice is easier to perform against people without the money or the social status or the power to defend themselves. And this is clear to see in the world around us. Uh, So the FIFA World Cup is due to begin next month in Qatar, and it's estimated that up to 30,000 foreign laborers have been hired just to build the new stadiums. In an Amnesty International report, it said that many workers were living in squalid accommodation 
that they've had their passports confiscated, were suffering from punitive illegal wage deductions and had faced months of unpaid wages for long hours of gruelling work. In a Guardian report, it was revealed that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since it was awarded the World Cup in 2010. I'm sure that more would have been done if it was the footballers facing months of unpaid wages. But of course, the labourers do not have the same power or money or influence that the footballers do. Proverbs 31 verse 8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. In the Old Testament, we see God's concern for justice form the basis of many of Israel's laws in order to create a society of social justice for the poor and vulnerable. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 to 8, we see that Israel is told that they should keep God's commands so that all of the nations will look at Israel, at the justice and peace within their society, those, uh, that justice and peace based on God's laws, and then be attracted to God's wisdom and glory. In the New Testament, we see issues of justice of injustice practically resolved. There's a really good example of this in Acts 6. So in the early church in Jerusalem, there were two cultural groups, the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And there was something of a cultural difference between these two groups. Some commentators suggest uh, that there was almost like a spiritual snobbery amongst the Hebrew Jews who looked down on the Greek Jews. And this passage in Acts, it refers to something called the daily distribution which was a collection of money and goods, which was then distributed to the needy and particularly to widows. And in chapter 6, we see that the Greek-speaking Jews uh, are complaining because their widows were being overlooked. So the apostles decide to appoint leaders over the daily distribution to ensure that it was distributed fairly. And I think what's easy to overlook when you read this passage is that the people who were appointed all had names that indicated they were Greek-speaking. So here we see an example of the apostles empowering a disempowered group. There's nothing to say that the Greek widows were being deliberately overlooked, but the apostles saw that there was an issue of injustice and took action to resolve it. Later on we see that when Christians were a small minority in the Roman Empire, it was their charity and their devotion to the poor that evoked great respect from the population. So the question is, if God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him, to be a def- leads him to be the defender of the poor, what should God's people be like? I would suggest too, we too should be passionately concerned for the weak and the vulnerable. As James says, we should be a community of justice and mercy. I was, um, I was watching what turned out to be a remarkable interview the other day. Um, it was following the uh, Chancellor's mini-budget and the, the fallout from that. And the interview involved a political commentator, and they were discussing uh, what more could be done to help the poorest in society. Um, and the commentator said that he had no interest whatsoever in helping those who were poor, that he felt it was wrong on both an economic and a moral level to help the poor, and that it was 100% down to individuals to help themselves. Now, whilst I wouldn't suggest this is in any way a mainstream view, it did get me thinking. 
Do I ever have an attitude of indifference to the poor? Do I ever have a sense of superiority to the poor? And I think it's really easy to slip into this mindset um, that we live in a, a dog-eat-dog world that is about the survival of the fittest and that you, know, you, must carely soul for, uh, you must care solely for yourself at the expense of others. But this attitude isn't in line in any way with the attitude that God wants for his people. For some of us, and I include myself in this, God wants us to find a new attitude towards the poor. But how do we do this? How does it happen? In the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by proclaiming God's favour on some of the most unlikely people. We see in Matthew 5, verse 3, that Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, most scholars over centuries have, have understood that God's blessing and salvation, it comes to those who acknowledge a sense of spiritual bankruptcy. William Barclay puts it like this, Blessed is the man who has realised his own utter helplessness and has put his whole trust in God. So I think to be poor in spirit is to realise that we are deeply in debt before God that we have no ability to begin to redeem ourselves. And I think if we grasp this, if we grasp that we are deeply in debt before God, that if we don't have the ability to redeem ourselves, then what happens when we come face to face with someone who's economically or materially poor? Are you going to say, like the man in the interview, I have no interest in helping you. It's down to you to improve your own position by your own effort. If Jesus had looked at our spiritual poverty and said it's down to us to improve our own position through our own efforts, then none of us would have hope for salvation. Maybe you might say, I don't mind helping the poor, but I only want to help the deserving poor. I don't want to help those who contributed to getting themselves in their own mess. Again, if God had looked down from heaven and said, I'm only going to bring salvation to those that deserve it, he would not have had to send his son Jesus because there are none who deserve it. And I think when we grasp this and when we truly understand the gospel, that God sees us as spiritually bankrupt, yet sent his son to save us, then looking at the poor will be like looking in a mirror. We'll no longer be indifferent. We will lose that sense of superiority. Tim Keller puts it like this. We will look at the poor and their tattered clothes and think, all my righteousness is a filthy rag. But in Christ, we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. So this morning, whilst I'm predominantly talking on James 2, I just want to go back to James 1, because there is a verse in there that I think helps our understanding of this, this amazing verse uh, in James 1, um, verse 9, where it says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Now, what on earth does this mean? Well, if we go back to what the gospel is, that you in yourself deserve nothing but rejection, but you can be saved, not by your works or performance, but by the works of Jesus at the cross. The gospel says that when you say, Father, accept me for what Jesus did, then God does accept you because he lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you should have died. He fulfilled the requirements 
of salvation for you. So as a Christian, we have this low position. In ourselves, we deserve to be rejected. But because of the gospel through Christ, we also have a high position. And James, he takes this dynamic and he says, Christians who are poor, you are both low and high. You are sinners, but saved by grace. And Christians who are rich, you are also both low and high. You too are sinners, saved by grace. But he says, Christians who are poor, who out in the world get nothing but disdain, who are disproportionately victims of injustice, it would spiritually benefit you to dwell on your high position. So even though you are still sinners, in Christ you are somebody. And for rich, successful Christians who out in the world are praised and admired for their achievements and successes, James says it would spiritually benefit you to dwell on your low position, even though you too are an adopted child of God. Because where in the world some people get nothing but disdain and other people get nothing but praise and acclaim, in the gospel those distinctions disappear. The gospel lifts up the humble and it humbles the elevated. And I think when we realise this, when we let this get deep inside our hearts, then our attitude towards the poor and the vulnerable will not be one of indifference. It won't be one of superiority. It will become one that is Christ-like, full of mercy and compassion. So if this stuff challenges you, and it has really challenged me over the, the past few weeks as I've been preparing, then the question is, you know, what can we do? How do we practically look at issues of injustice in our society and go about solving them? Well, unfortunately, I don't think there is any easy, easy answer. There is certainly no easy solution. Uh, issues of justice are often incredibly complicated, incredibly multifaceted. And I don't know about you, but it can often feel overwhelming knowing where to begin. In the um, 1990s, the World Bank initiated a huge research project which involved sending out hundreds of journalists uh, to go into the top 60 low-income areas of the world and conduct thousands of interviews with people who were living in poverty. Um, and the idea was to try and understand those people's experience of poverty and then ultimately what some of the best practices were that could be adopted in order to solve them. And many of these interviews were recorded in a book that's called Voices of the Poor. And I just want to show you a couple of quotes from, uh, from these interviews. The first one is, uh, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. When I don't have any food for my family, I borrow. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to feed them. I'm not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. During the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a gift. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, a constant feeling of unhappiness and low self-esteem. You feel like a piece of furniture being shoved in all directions. I work a lot, but can never get ahead. I rarely get outside. It's hard to make friends. I think what's really startling about these quotes and the thing that really spoke to me when I first read them was that whilst things like uh, lack of food and shelter and basic necessities are mentioned within these quotes, and these are the things that we often think about when we think of poverty, it's not really the primary message uh, that these people are delivering. 
Notice that these people, they speak of isolation, of depression, of shame, of having a low sense of self-worth, of having no dignity. When these people in poverty describe their experience, they primarily describe it in psychological, in spiritual, and in relational terms. And I think it's really important for us to hear that and to think about it, because our understanding of an issue often translates into how we try and help those. There's a book um, that I read called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself. And the authors in this book, they argue that often our efforts in dealing with poverty are in terms of helping people to survive. When we think of surviving, it's ensuring that people have the basic necessities, food, clothing, shelter. However, when people in poverty describe their experience, as we have seen, often they talk about an inability to thrive. And thriving is about helping people find dignity, helping people find their God-given worth. It's about having spiritual and relational health. And I found this really helpful framework provided in um, a really fantastic book uh, called Generous Justice by Tim Keller um, that I really recommend if you, if you want to know more about this subject to read. And in this, he describes uh, different levels of help. Uh, he calls these levels relief, development, and social reform. So relief. Relief is direct aid to meet immediate needs, whether those needs are physical, material, or economic. And this, of course, is really, really important. In Jesus' parable, we see the Good Samaritan provide relief in the form of physical protection as well as medical treatment. Relief is also really important during natural disasters. Uh, just recently, the UN increased its aid appeal for Pakistan, where five million people are facing a severe food crisis in the wake of recent floods. Relief can also take the form of temporary shelters, of food banks, of fostering, of caring for the elderly. And let me stress again, these things are really, really important. But they tend to just deal with poverty in terms of surviving. The next levels of help are all about people thriving. So the next level is uh, development. So development would mean giving an individual, a family, or an entire community what they need to move beyond dependency into a condition of economic self-sufficiency. And there is a biblical premise to this. In Deuteronomy, when a slave's debt was erased and he was released, God directed that his former master send him out with sufficient grain, sufficient tools and resources for a new self-sufficient economic life. So development could include things like education, like job creation and training, like financial counselling. And whereas relief is something that we give to people, development tends to be something we do alongside people in relationship. So whilst people in poverty may need relief, they also may need a friend who's going to journey with them for the long haul, who's going to remind them that they're a human created in the image of God, that they have God-given dignity and worth, that they have the skills to offer the world that they can provide for themselves. And we see this kind of stuff happening in this church already. There's stuff like food bank and fair share food where it is much more than just providing food. It's also about building relationships and friendships. It's about helping those people move from survive to thrive. 
for anyone interested in the, in the, um, the Hope Into Action housing project. This project does exactly that. It provides relief in the form of accommodation, but it also provides development through the mentors that will journey with those who are living in the houses. Development, of course, is more time-consuming, it's more complex, it's more costly than relief, but it firmly helps those in poverty to begin to move from survive to thrive. And then finally, there is social reform. Social reform, it moves beyond the relief of immediate needs and dependency, and it seeks to change the conditions of social structures that aggravate or cause that dependency. So if we go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, imagine that over the months and years ahead, the Samaritan makes that trip between Jerusalem and Jericho, and every time he finds another man beaten and robbed on the road. Finally, the Samaritan says, how do we stop this violence once and for all? And the answer would be some kind of social reform. Famous social reforms in history would include William Wilberforce, who was a leader of the movement to abolish the slave trade. Uh, through his political power and through his faith, he saw the creation of the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. Relief can take a number of years, and it can sometimes um, require the total dedication of someone's life to see the change. And whilst I don't believe that we're all called to dedicate our lives to one issue of social reform, and perhaps you're maybe at the stage of life now where you just don't have capacity or uh, the, the, the time to devote large chunks of your life to just one issue. There will be others here who are doing exactly that. Yeah, so perhaps there are members in this church who are involved in charities that are seeking social reform in certain areas. Uh, there may be people whose, um, whose job involves advocating for social reform. There may also be people here who just passionately, passionately believe in, in one area where they want to see a change um, of social, of a, a change in, in the social structure. And they're de dedicating their time and their money and their resources towards seeing that change. So if there are people like that here today, then let's be a community that supports that. Whether that's through our finances, whether that's through prayer, whether that's just through talking to them and asking, you know, what is the issue you're passionate about? Tell me more about it. So this morning, you know, hopefully there may be an area where you feel compelled to action. That may be in the form of relief, of providing basic necessities to those without. Or maybe you could involve, get involved in some kind of development in helping those move from surviving to thriving. Or maybe you are sitting here this morning and there is just one issue that you're so passionate about, that you feel so strongly about, that you want to be an advocate for social change. As mentioned right at the beginning, justice is an incredibly complex area. But I believe that God wants us here in DIS to be a community that strives for justice, to be a community that is merciful, not just in our words, but also in our actions. Thank you.